coming up on this episode of the Green Door Podcast. We'll talk about a divine conspiracy theory, but will it hold water? We'll ask if there's anything odd about the numbers the professor uses in his stories. We'll channel our inner Paula Abdul and take a look at opposites that are attracted. We'll meet the ultimate party god. Surf's up, dude. And we'll meet a heavenly pair whose couple name could be Van Hellspring? All this and much more coming up right now. Evening, James. Welcome to Crick Hollow. Good evening. Wow, I gotta say, even though I've been here before, this uh, place is hard to see from the road. Uh, what's what? What is that smell? It smells delicious in here. You got the soup on. Um, ah, oh, no, 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 James. That's just uh, Fatty. He's having a bath in the back. <laughs> oh, of course. My mistake yeah. again. <laughs> he, he smells good though. May. I see. I see. Uh, the kettle looks like it's boiling. What are you? What are you doing over there? James, I'm so glad you came by. The tea is ready, and we're about to sit down. So, uh, how can I serve it to you? Uh, I'll take mine with uh, a, a little something sweet and a little something white, which is very, very North American, I think. But that's the way I drink it. Right on. And you, Ads? Uh, as it comes, May. As it comes. Uh, no sugar. No sugar. All right. Okay, I think we're all set, guys. Yes, we are, May. And let's thank Fatty Bulger for inviting us over to Crick Hollow to podcast tonight. There is a specific reason I wanted this location, which we'll get to later. But first, Ads, are you ready to light the fire? I certainly am. Here we go. Lovely. And uh, as Ads lights the fire, we'd like to welcome everybody into Crick Hollow. Please take off your cloak and put your boots by the door, pull up a stool, and sit by that warm fire as we get ready to dive into the second chapter, which isn't chapter two, it's an unnumbered chapter, the Valaquenta. Guys, uh, ads, May, I'm very excited to be talking with you after a long break. The two of you all day have sort of been getting amped up with me on on, uh, Twitter and DMing. Uh, yep. May, how are you feeling? Feeling so excited, guys. This is wonderful. A lot of good stuff coming up uh, our listeners' way. And uh, let's dive in. Yes, couldn't agree more. No, this is this almost feels like we're starting again proper now. It's, it, it feels like we're almost getting into the story. You know, There's been a bit of a set in the scene so far, and, and we are just about to sort of get into the good stuff. So I'm really looking forward to it. No, you're absolutely right. We're getting uh, we're getting rolling, and I want to mention Nathan Mills from Beyond the Guitar, who uh, we always hear on the way in, with his incredible interpretation of Concerning Hobbits. And if you love that, like we do, uh, he had just released um, a couple of days ago uh, a version of the Misty Mountain song from the Hobbit movie, which I, of all the things in the Hobbit movie, that's one of my absolute highlights. That that version of the song that dwarves sing, uh, and his version Nathan Mills from Beyond the Guitar is equally enchanting have you guys heard it yeah it's really talented really 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 good piece isn't it I listened to it the other day um recommend it yeah I tweeted it out and it got a nice response because it's so good uh moving along ads speaking of tweeted it out 
Uh, let's let's do some Twitter mentions. What do you, what do you think? Okay, Twitter, followed by Facebook. All right, and we were talk we were talking off uh, air, uh, off air, and I was saying that there's quite a few people. So I'm going to try and name as many as I can in about a minute. Okay. Ooh, so stopwatch sound effect. <laughs> we're going to start with Twitter. Ready? Steady. I'm ready. Go. We've had mentions and interactions with Tom, Andy K, Olga, Pedro, Colbert Nerd, Caitlin, K Morritt, uh, San Diego Sabres, Mike, Matthew, Thranduil, Judy, Greta, Earthen Oak, Jeremy, Rosie, Durinlass, uh, SS underscore Sumali, Buffalo Nerd 12, Bjorn, Eagle Writer, Joel Horbaker, Ryan Bullock, and Liv, who hopefully has not cut her hair. Then on Facebook, <laughs> where <laughs> we now have 56 people in our little group, which is it's not really little anymore, it's, get, it's getting quite big, and it's loads of fun in there, uh, so do come check us out. Uh, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the information about where you can where you can find us in a minute, but in Facebook we now have welcomed with a green door Alexander, Andy, Ruth, Lee, Tom, Sarah, Olga, who has a fantastic blog, Middle Earth Reflections, do check that out, uh, Bookdrak, Chad, Jeffrey, Lizzie, Connor, Richard, Jeremy, Dan, Matt, Natalie, Simon, Karen, Georgia, Nadine, Jessica and Anthony, Larry, and, and this is a good one, Jeff, Jeff Lasala of Tor.com, of the Silmarillion Primer. He is a member of our group. Could not be happier. Um, and then there's been some, some mentions for Home One Hangout. Uh, again, Matt, Mike, and Professor Chuckles. And also, fantastic podcast. They are brilliant at what they do. Prancing Pony podcast. They're probably a couple of years ahead of us, but they pretty much do the same thing, and they've uh, they've given us a bit of love on on Twitter as well. So, like to to say thank you for that. Thanks for doing that. I know it takes a couple of minutes, but it's worth mentioning the people who are showing us the love. Yeah, no, definitely. And you can you can find us on Twitter at the Green Door, um, and on Facebook uh, the Green Door Podcast. Uh, and yeah, come over and say hi. We'd love to we'd love to have you on board and. And then have a chat. Well done, sir. And uh, I don't know how much uh, time you were supposed to get there, but you kept it pretty close to um, double what you said. So let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, a new segment. Uh, a new segment called the listener question bag, and it's only going to be called that until we get a better name. Uh, I wanted yeah. to call it the post bag, um, but then we it, it feels like we'd be stepping on the toes of, of the Prancing Pony podcast who you just men- mentioned. So I'm not sure. Maybe we'll do that anyways because they, they dance better than us and standing on their feet would improve the way we look. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. If someone gives us a better suggestion on Twitter at the Green Door Pod um, for our mailbag selection where people send us questions, we'll certainly um, name it in your honor. But to add, so I'm going to turn to you. Can you reach into the mailbag this week and give us the listener questions, please? May, are you excited about this? So excited. Tell me all about it, guys. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Um, what what bag, James? Uh, Was that, did, you, did you send me the bag? Uh, no. 
because it's empty, we have no questions. But we're going to keep this segment anyways, uh, hoping it inspires people to fill that bag up for next week with uh, feedback or comments or questions because, really, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, we, we, we really would. would. We really would. Uh, okay, uh, actual new segment, uh, although we will keep the listener question uh, segment uh, hopefully, hopefully, I think we'll. I think we'll that. get some. I think we'll get some questions, James. I'm pretty certain we will. I think we've got some. We've got some good people out there who listen. Who, I'm sure, will have something they want to ask. Yeah, we also got the so, kind of comedians who th- would think it was funny to let us do an empty bit for a few weeks. But either <laughs> way, <laughs> yeah. If, that's if true. people do have questions, guys, they should reach out to us on Twitter and on Facebook, right? Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, Definitely. At the Green Door Pod. I think we plugged it a few times already. Uh, one more is good, though. Um, Vlog May. Speaking of plugging things. Yes, um, yes, yes. As we, we build this community, as, 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 we, as we sort of try to amp up, May has brought a whole new side um, of visual presentation to our podcast. So uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit, May? Yeah, so we want to invite our listeners to check out our vlog on YouTube. You can look for Meike Hala. Um, that's my channel, and you'll find a bunch of different vlogs about uh, the Green Door podcast. We like to um, shoot a little bit of behind-the-scenes footage and put it together uh, for some fun and games. Um, this week, we have something brand new, um, something that we called Mythology. So... It's basically a look at Tolkien's creation, and we like to pick and choose a couple of things and compare that to world mythology. Again, with a little bias uh, towards Norse mythology. (laughs) But um, yeah, all in good taste. So uh, come and check it out. Let me know what you think. Let us know what you think about it. And uh, I would like to thank anybody who picked it up on Twitter and retweeted retweeted the the vlog that was a great help for getting uh, the word around and um sharing the uh, sharing the love so thank you guys yeah i know it was really well done again may my hat is off to you uh thanks for taking care of uh such awesome content and uh i learned like i'm sure a lot of people did i learned a few things which is always nice when you're diving into a book like the silmarillion to have as much uh exterior and contextual knowledge as possible it gives you sort of things to to reflect upon as you go through it ads i know you uh, enjoyed it a lot as well yeah i did and i like you i learned a lot i mean it's not something that i i've ever really sort of known too much about sort of the norse uh, cosmology so hearing may explain it in the way that she does on on the vlog and compare it to sort of tolkien and something that i am more familiar with um, it's been really interesting. So, yeah, more of the same. It's almost like she's taken over, though, James. I don't know. These... Yeah, usurp is the word that comes to mind. She's Karen. got like she's got like minions <laughs> and everything. Wait, 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 guys! The minions are coming later. Later on the show, we'll talk about minions. Yeah. No, no. Jo- joking aside, it's brilliant, and it's 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 something that I'm really looking forward to uh, watching more of, and then seeing where May takes it. Yeah, and we'll d- dive into if uh, anybody did pick it up this week, retweet it, watch it, share it, uh, I love it, um, then thank you very much. It's good stuff, and we'll talk more about it later in this particular episode. Yeah. Uh, some of the highlights and some of the ideas um, that need mentioning, because May brings up some really good influences on Tolkien's uh, 
mythology. So thanks for that, May. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, so yeah, let's uh, dive right into uh, the Valaquenta. Um, the first thing in the notes, guys, that we're going to toss around here is, is the return of the three-beat structure. Uh, there's basically three chapter subheadings of the Valar, of the Maiar, and of the enemies. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think uh, this is just more of the same? And did you notice it bef before uh, we brought it up and harped on it last week? I hadn't, no. I mean, I, I can honestly say hand on heart that I had not considered this three-part... Uh, reoccurrence all the time um so it was a lot of that, it yeah there is uh, and it was only when it was raised last week that that i started to to notice that it's it's all over the place isn't it so um, and then you mentioned again i know we're, we're probably going to touch on it but you mentioned that the odd numbers and and that's something that seems so obvious now and when you were saying it it was like wow yes but i hadn't i hadn't thought that previously no, you're right, and that is a nice segue through there. May, uh, I think, beautifully summed up the um, the waltz uh, musicality to the three-beat structure and uh, the usefulness as a writer. May, is there anything you wanted to add to that, uh, to, to harp on these threes, like Tolkien seems to harp on odd numbers in threes? Um, I think it was very smart of you to pick it up, James, in this chapter, because I... I kind of breezed through the chapter without really paying attention, but <laughs> good on you that you uh, that you mentioned it. Uh, and it's true that it just keeps on reoccurring. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that actually is the segue we wanted to make, right? Because we're, we're going to talk next about the uh, odd numbers reoccurring, and, and what, three is, is seems to be maybe the most common. Three Silmarils, three Elven Rings, three races, uh, the three verses from the first uh, from the original music. Um, but then I'm going to continue on uh, through a list here. And people, I hope you add to this. If there's something you're going to tweet at us, this is sort of a fun little, uh, we can get a hashtag going, odd num Tolkien odd, odd numbers or something to that effect. But when you get to fives, you've got the five armies and the five wizards. Um, ads, do you want to talk about sevens? Yeah, so you've got the seven uh, Palantir, the sea and stones. You've got the seven dwarven rings. You've got the seven queens of the Valar, the seven kings of the Valar. Um, and then moving on to nine, May. Nine Nazgul and a nine in the Fellowship of the Ring. Which is uh, always a nice little sort of pairing, eh? Uh, that, that balance that they had going through that uh, book was, was uh, never accidental, always obvious. Yeah. And nine, nine is actually a pretty special number. It's the last of the single digits. Um, so you, you get a lot, of, uh, a lot of references to nine in uh, in Norse myth, but also in in the Lord of the Rings or uh, Tolkien's Legendarium, which is a it's, it is a beautiful number. Nine is a multiple of three. Three being oftentimes associated with something holy. So um, yeah, nine. And then we move on to thirteen. Uh, thirteen for Thorin and company uh, before Bilbo actually joins the the group. Right, and, and it was mentioned, I, I think, somewhere in the book that 13 was, was unlucky, considered unlucky, even, uh, you know, in the third age of, of Middle-earth, apparently, yeah, and it is today as well. So, I, you know, one of those links that's supposed to make it f uh, feel maybe contextually real, the stories, how you know, can we can relate to the idea that 13 is an unlucky number. Okay, then, James, so hold that thought, right? In about an hour's time, let's come back to that, because that's just Deal. made me think of something. 
Excellent. We'll put it. We'll put a pin in that and uh, and give a shout out to Alistair uh, Stevens. <clears throat> yes. Good. Good. Yes. <laughs> uh, and finally, and finally, fifteen. There were fifteen um, of the Valar uh, with Melkor, uh, but he gets sort of ditched from the uh, from that name, and there's there ends up being fourteen. But uh, but we, we sort of made a list there of all of the odd numbers, and and in in the notes, the last thing that, that's mentioned there adds. You want to talk about nineteen seventy three as being sort of one of those weird coincidences? Sorry, James, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank a second. Why am oh, uh, I, I thought uh, I had tweeted that to you, but you might I well have done. Just, no, you uh, might well have done. Pick it up myself. Um, no, 1973 is the year that the professor passed. Yes. Uh, and yes. It's it's every number of the of the rings of power in the poem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You did. You definitely tweeted me that. Yeah. That that's incredible, isn't it? One the nine one, seven three. three. Seven, wow. Nine. Well, I don't know. It's it's one of those like you know. <clears throat> Kennedy's secretary was named uh, Lincoln, and Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. One of those weird sort of coincidences. How strange. How strange. It's almost too strange, guys. Almost <laughs> too strange. Conspiracy theories, I don't know. It's uh, Imagine someone who spends their whole life crafting this, you know, body of work that revolves around, let's say, one ring... Uh, nine rings for the men, seven for the dwarves, three for the elves, and this person happens to pass away yeah. in 1973. Yeah, it's it's almost creepy. And it's here's something even stranger. Creepy. Here's something even stranger. So you've got the One Ring. Now I would say the One Ring controls the nine, followed by the seven, but it doesn't. Or Sauron never controlled the th- the three, did it? So even the order of it makes sense as well. The three is yes. certainly furthest from the one in in terms of uh, yeah <coughs> being controlled, and the nine would be the closest. Okay, stop it now! You're freaking me out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you started it. I just thought that was a, a one of those things that's worth pointing out because it's um, I don't I don't really know that it's anything other than a, a creepy coincidence, but it's. For some people, they really get into that kind of stuff. So we'll point it out and let them run with it as far as they want to. Absolutely. Can I add one thing? On that on that list we've just given, the obvious the obvious missing number there in, in the list is 11. So I don't know, but I wonder if someone can produce an 11 for us. Well, that lightning strike is our first interruption of the evening. 11 I don't know how we missed 111. Maybe the greatest number in all of the legendarium. Oh, I'm sure someone much brighter than us will, uh, and that won't take long. Yeah. Maybe it'll be uh, Dave Donovan. Yes! So crazy right now. Yeah! <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll move along. Hey, Dave, uh, put, guys, put a and... ring on it. <laughs> <laughs> All in good fun, Dave. <clears throat> okay. And so we'll dive right into the chapter itself, uh, the Valakenta, which describes uh, the very early uh, events uh, at the beginning of time for Middle-earth, uh, or, or Earth, or Arda uh, in general. And it describes uh, how the Ainur, some of them, chose to show up at the beginning of time and try to accomplish the vision that they saw. Uh, try to accomplish the building of Earth, the, the grandness and beauty of this planet, 
um, that they had seen in a vision of music and um, through them try to um, get to the end of the song that they had seen. Uh, and, and that sort of takes a, a paragraph and then they jump right into uh, describing the, the greatest of the gods, the Valar. So I'm going to take it from there and, and uh, walk you guys through some of the Valar who we haven't spoken too much about yet. And in episode two, uh, we assigned some music and uh, gave some brief character descriptions. So I'm sort of going to do that and talk about what it says about these guys in the chapter itself. And so the first one I'm going to talk about, um, which is sort of my favorite guy who's maybe the, the most simple, less in, least interesting character, and that's uh, Telkas. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! What, the, what do you guys think? Just give me your impression, like, where does he rank? Top, middle, or bottom of, of your list of, like, preferred Valar? Because I, I could see how he's probably not in the middle for a lot of people, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, adds you first. I don't know. I, f- I find him a strange one. He's, he wouldn't be in the top three or four. Um, I'd always have your Olmos, your Oles. I'd probably have him alongside someone like Manway, if that makes sense. He's, he's interesting, uh, and he's, he's like the jock, isn't he? He's, he's like... Um, He's like the guy at school who was brilliant at sport. Um, but personally, he's not one of my favorite. May, would you put him high or low or in the middle? Okay, I'm going to be super honest here. Um, Talkis, uh, the only thing I, I figured out from him is whatever I read in this chapter because I don't remember what happens in the future. But oh, that's reading, good. reading his description, I get a visual of... Chris Hemworth, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it it totally does it for me. So I get the, the you know the blonde guy, the happy go lucky, the you know the brute force kind of thing going on. You know, so uh, a, a bit of that. Uh, you know, so I would think that he's he's probably it depend depends for what his purpose is. But if the purpose is to set foot on a battlefield, I think he's your go to guy. Um, yeah, pro- no, you're not wrong there. He's definitely uh, no, no, um, no words minced with Telkes. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, highlight some of the parts I like about him. Uh, it, says, it says in the chapter that he's faster than anything with feet, uh, so he doesn't ride a horse because he outruns them. Um, yeah. And his hands are his weapons, which adds, think about this, um, Grand, the hammer of uh, yeah. Melkor. Yeah. Um, that's his weapon. And Telkes chooses... His hands, and and can beat up Melkor. He's so, like a, he's like a WWF wrestler, <laughs> isn't he? Basically, he's, he's like Thor meets Hercules meets uh, Hulk meets, Hogan. But he's he's yeah. he's not got he's not got much upstairs. I mean, and and the text actually <laughs> says that. I mean, it says that he's not good at, at counseling. He's he's not going to. It be, doesn't say that he's stupid necessarily, but it does say that he's not good at counsel. He's no good for counseling, right? Because he doesn't think about the future. He's, he's, he lives in the moment. He's so he doesn't a think fighter. about the future or the past. Yeah, that's yeah. right. He's lives a fighter. Moment. He's not a thinker. He's a fighter. So he executes, you know? He's, he's that guy One's, who... Oh, yeah, he's an actor. Uh, when, uh, he's an action-first kind of person. Um, and one thing that I like that it says about him, uh, it says, um, and comparing him to Orome, who we told you was like basically one of the... or was the soldier elite... And it says, Arome is a mighty lord. 
If he is less strong than Tulkas, he is more dreadful in anger, whereas Tulkas laughs ever, in sport or in war, and even in the face of Melkor. He laughed in the battles before the elves were born. I love that. He's, he's fighting, like, the guy who basically, uh, and it says in the chapter of him, he joined um, the Ainur who came early. He joined them late just because they were warring with uh, Melkor. Yeah. Uh, he jumps in just because. He's like, what? There's, I didn't realize there was going to be a fight going on. I, I didn't pay attention to that part of the vision, but now that I see this, um, I'm, I'm all, in. I'm all in, yeah. And basically, Melkor's beating 14 of the most powerful gods, and Tulkis can sort of single-handedly... Uh, chase him away. So he's, he's really uh, the, the super strong, uh, unstoppable force fighter. Say dude, it. For say sure. it. Say the word. Say the word. Thor? He's a berserker. I said Thor. He's a, <laughs> he's a berserker. He's, he's the... I love that. Yeah. Bjorn's one of my favorite characters, he, so... He just embodies this raw energy, which is You know, amazing. May, it's funny, the uh, origins of the Bjornings are, are unknown in the Legendarium. So... Um, Bjorn the, Bjorn the Berserker is, what, is one of the things he's referenced as. So maybe there's some sort of bloodline between, uh, between Bjorn and, and, uh, and Telkes. That would yeah, be something. That's interesting. Certainly. <clears throat> um, next on the list of uh, interesting people and, and descriptions from the chapter is Nessa, uh, the dancer, who is Telkes's uh, wife. And... Um, sister of Orome and is as swift as an arrow um, more fleet footed than deer uh, who she loves she loves the deer she loves running with them and outrunning them uh, and loves dancing so basically I think these two uh, know how to party uh, and Nessa. I think I think he drinks uh, a couple of kegs to himself <laughs> and uh, she's she sees the sun come up because uh, she's dancing the night away yeah it's a good combination yeah, yeah, they're fun. They're, the, they're, they're sort of the most, two of the most fun of the uh, of the vlog. So, he, so here's something then. Um, she's she's mad for the deer, right? They're, they're sacred to her. But her brother is effectively a huntsman. So you've got brother and sister, and you've got a really interesting comparison between the two there. That's true. Um, although he would hunt deer for sure. Uh, I think he, he preferred to hunt like Foul creatures and beasts. Bowels. I see. I see uh, Orome as being some kind of Valhensing, uh, chasing beasts and monsters. And oh, nice, know. nice cross reference there. Yes, yeah, I think good. you're right. He's got the horn, the white horse. He's got you know. Does he? Does he also hunt with hounds or something? He, he, he just does have Huan, uh, the the uh, hound. So yeah, no, um, very very. Uh, I'd never thought of it before, and I didn't know um, that Van Helsing um, lined up so well with Orome. But it, now that you say it, it seems it seems pretty obvious to people who know both stories. They probably knew that already. Yeah, yeah. Well done, May. Making making ads and I smarter. <laughs> it's two, just two shows in a row now. <laughs> Well, that's going to be every show, no, but no. if we're not careful, we're going to learn too much. Well, I'm sorry, you're not going to girls, smarter. isn't it, you see? She's bringing, she's bringing the girls along, and it's all going to change. Um, <laughs> next up, I'm going to breeze over Ulmo, because I want to come back to him in my conspiracy theory 
speaking of which, cons this conspiracy theory I have about Ulmo is the reason I wanted to meet at Crick Hollow tonight. So there's the, uh, the inspiration for the location this evening. Um, so we'll, we'll breeze past him and uh, discuss what it says about uh, Vanna. Uh, she's the younger sister of Yavanna, and um, Vanna is basically, um, I want to say like, if, if there's mother nature, then she's daughter nature or little sister nature. Um, she's, uh, what was Barbie's little sister's name? Uh, at? <laughs> God knows, but I, there, I was, was, a, there was a dog there, called Cindy. I know that. Skipper, maybe? Oh, May, I'm surprised you had that, but thank you. Um, <laughs> skipper. Uh, she's sort of the skipper doll to Mother Nature. Uh, and she's Orome's wife. Um, and, and she, yeah, he likes to hunt and, and kill foul beasts and flowers open when she walks by. So... Uh, that's one of the descriptions of her in the uh, in the chapter. It says it says you know flowers open as, as she's she effectively she's she's so spring. I isn't think she? they're sort of the opposites she's, that attract. She's spring. Yeah, she's she is the flowering of spring. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, she's everything green and young. Um, she delights in in uh, in the soft and gentle sort of uh, awakening of things. Um, and uh, yeah, I think she's a, a, a nice sort of complement to Arome's gruff, stiff, uh, straight kind yeah. of uh, demeanor. So that they, they line up, they line themselves up pretty nicely too. And from Vanna, we move on to Irmo. Uh, AKA Lorian. And uh, he's referred to as Lorian uh, because of the, the uh, garden he keeps or the, uh, the basically patch of the most beautiful uh, earth, fruits, lakes, streams um, ever to exist in the world. And Irmo, uh, Lorian, is the um, god that's associated with dreams and visions. Brother of, of uh, Mandos, uh, Nemo. Um, it's, it's, it's Namo. Yeah. Thank you, Namo. Uh, brother of Namo, who we called Mandos in our uh, last sort of highlight episode. Uh, Mandos being the uh, guardian of the gates to the dead. Uh, his younger brother being the uh, sort of keeper of dreams and visions. So there's an association there that, that makes sense to me. Does that line up I for you guys? I love this. I love this 100%. It's beautiful. Can we just spend a few seconds on Mendos here? Um, I have of a course. question for you guys. Uh, it says that Mendos is the keeper of the house of, of the dead. So the house of death. Um, he summons spirits, the spirits of the slain. And when I read this, I just wondered, so he takes in people that have died a violent death, I would assume, since we're talking about the spirits of the slain. Is that correct? Correct. Especially since most of the um, people or creatures <laughs> that he's sort of uh, dealing with are immortal. So the only way, like mm. for elves, for example, the only ways they could even end up in his halls would be through battle. Right. Um, so yeah, he's he's looking he's lo not looking at a lot of uh, a peaceful um, died in his sleep kind of um, souls. He's he's got a, he's got a lot of pain and torment coming. But did you way. did you know, uh, May, that when when the spirits of those slain elves um, find their way to the hall of awaiting for Mandos to judge them, it's up to Mandos then. I, th I believe, and James, you can correct me if this is wrong, but he still has to sort of follow what Manway decrees. 
but ultimately they then rehouse those spirits into a new body. So those elves then return, but in a new body, but uh, they don't get to go back to Middle-earth, apart from one, which we find out later on. Oh, interesting. That's, I think that's pretty much accurate, Ads. And if I'm wrong, someone will correct me as well, but that sounds quite accurate to me. Do we get to find out where they go? And I, they, they stay in the, the Blessed Realm, uh, Valinor, the, the, yeah. the land be, uh, on the other side of the sea. They stay with the gods. Uh, they, don't get back, they, they don't get to come back to Middle-earth, but they get to live in, in I guess, temporary paradise until um, the music ends and then the great singing occurs for all uh, souls to go to yeah, the greater so, paradise, which I think, I think is how we interpreted it um, yeah, a couple I think of shows so. ago. It's, and some of the elves do. obviously have to wait longer to be re- rehoused into a, a new body. Um, the spirits are kept by Mandos um, until they feel uh, enough time has passed, you know, depending on whether or not they've been a good elf or a bad elf. Yeah, and time's a funny thing because Gandalf, um, uh, Olorin, the Maiar, gets sent back to the halls and he says. Uh, something to the effect of he he spent mm. you know time out of mind, um, sort of rekindling his soul, and be, before he got put back into a body, and then but he comes back sort of you know days or weeks later in, in terms of the Middle Earth Lord of the Rings timeline. As yeah. Gandalf the White, yes. Yes, uh, exactly. But um, yeah, all to say, Mandos definitely one of the coolest, most interesting of the Valar. His little brother, uh, Ermo. Pretty interesting as well um, as the um, god of the dreams and keeper of the incredible um, uh, forest of Lorien. So uh, we'll get back to that garden forest place of Lorien in a future episode and we'll move on to his wife, Este the Gentle. Uh, If ever you uh, have a hard time remembering her name, think of her as you're having trouble falling asleep because Este is the healer of hurts and weariness. Uh, And in the text it says, Grey is her raiment, and rest is her gift. She walks not by day, but sleeps upon an island in the tree-filled shadowed lake of Laurelin. Um, I just love the idea that uh, the god of dreams and the uh, goddess of healing of hurts uh, are married to each other uh, because, you know, rest uh, and repair go together so well. So, um... She's in. She's in charge of the spa, isn't she? Basically. Well, that's a good way to look at it. Ads. (laughs) She runs the spa. She's in charge. Good for a recharge. That's nice. Um, Very good. So uh, there's a few things I was going to mention about the people we, the characters we know a little more of. Uh, The fact that in the chapter it it does describe how Manwe and Varda are stronger together, something um, May referenced in Mythologies, which we'll come back around to later, but I wanted to mention that in passing because it highlights um, one of the themes in the book that, um, in general, uh, solace uh, and being alone is seen as often a negative thing, and being stronger together, uh, like Manwe and Varda are, being able to see and hear further uh, than anyone else on the planet, sort of see the, see all of Middle Earth at once when they're together on, on their throne. Um, strong yep. theme there. Uh, and also another thing I wanted to, to point out that it mentions in the chapter is uh, Orome has a mighty horn, 
And not only is the mighty horn, mighty horn interesting because of the way it's described, uh, it says, <clears throat> the Valarama is the name of his great horn, the sound of which is like the upgoing of the sun in scarlet, or the sheer lightning cleaving the clouds. Love the description, but also the idea that the, the horn is something that comes back through the stories. We see important horns, um, traditions sort of carried through the timeline. And uh, the idea that the horn is, is a note of music and that there's something powerful about this blowing this music, which brings us back again, guys, to music being powerful and important. Uh, did that strike you when, when you sort of read about the horn the first time? Um, and, and what do you think about that idea that I'm suggesting that that's, that's why it's pointed out as important? Because, uh, you know, there's not a lot of things highlighted in this short chapter, and the horn gets a mention. So I, to me, there's an important tie to the fact that it's a musical note uh, being so yeah, important. Yeah, no, I like that. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it as actually a musical note, so that, that's a nice little touch. Um, I like the way that if you, if you sort of break down Oromay's name, it's almost like a horn being blown oh Royal May it's, it's you know the, you could you could imagine it being being the actual the horn being blown um, and as you said it comes up plenty of times throughout the rest of the legendarium and Boromir alone obviously blows his horn in order to to uh, signal trouble so yeah it's a it's a nice touch um, Boromir oh Rome yeah I just noticed how similar the na the the musicality of their definitely. names are, definitely, and the fact that you know Oromay's a huntsman. I mean, Boromir is probably the the uh, one of the best fighters uh, in the Fellowship, surely. Yeah. Soldiers, no, certainly similar uh, type um, archetype to to Orome. Yeah, good very stuff. good. Uh, nice. May anything you wanted to add to add to add to the horn? Um, horns are. A staple of, I guess, medieval lore, um, at least for, for in the Norse tradition, um, the guardian of the Bifrost has a horn, and he's going to sound his horn when Ragnarok starts. So the end of the world starts on a musical note, uh, interestingly enough. And uh, like you guys said, uh, Oromi is a, he's a hunter, so... What better tool than a horn to uh, sound the beginning of a chase or to rally fighters together, um, you know? So it's it's almost like a, it, it's part of the decorum that this this character should have. So it's, it's beautiful and makes sense. I like it. And I, in the background, I can hear a horn chiming us into our next character, <laughs> a Yavanna, um, who we also have already met, uh, the Mother Nature character. But something I wanted to mention that it... Uh, discusses in the chapter itself is it says how um, one of the raiments, one of the appearances she takes is the form um, that's uh, as tall as a tree that reaches the sky and that tree drops um, seeds uh, that grow uh, vast valleys of green corn. Um, those are the words specifically actually in the book is the word corn which is something we're going to come back to um, when we talk again about mythology, and I'm really pumping up this mythology, May, because I really like it. And so we'll talk about the, the word corn itself, but it says, and from all its branches, there spilled golden dew upon the barren earth, and it grew green with corn, which always gave me a very specific image, uh, fields of maize. 
Um, but no, apparently there's something to be discussed there. All right, guys, I'm done. The part that I'm supposed to lead, and I'm about to pass the ball off to you, Ad. Ads, then the ball is all yours. The next uh, subheading in this uh, Velaquenta chapter is of the Maiar, which are the demigods. Okay, so, yes, the Maya. Um, they are... They are other spirits who came into to being before the world was created. In fact, we find out that many have stayed with Iluvatar in the Timeless Halls, but there are a few of importance worthy of a mention. So um, they seldom appear in visible form to the elves and the men, as we find out later on, uh, but there are, there are six uh, chief ones that, that are worthy of a mention. Now, before I, before I mention them, uh, I think it's important to just establish again that the, the Maya are from the same order as the Valar, but of, of a lesser degree in, in most cases. Uh, it's another example of almost like a class structure. So Tolkien was very big on class, uh, just the hobbits alone, you know, Frodo and Sam, they were from a distinct class uh, throughout throughout Lord of the Rings. Um the Maya are servants or helpers to the Valar, but still extremely powerful in what they can do. Um, they're almost like the backup singers in the great music. So when you think of the Ainulindale, they would have been they would have been the backing singers. Um, there's quite a big difference in the powers between just the individual Maya. So you know, one Maya might be far stronger than another one, um, and crucially. They, they help to make their big bosses more effective. So a Maya is associated with a particular uh, Valar. Um, and a lot of the tasks are delegated to these slightly lesser spirits. Um, they encompass the sort of similar traits and passions. So, and I'm, I'm going to slightly paraphrase something that our friend uh, Jeff Asala mentions in uh, his Cimmerillion Primer on Tor.com, a Maya of Mandos is likely to be quite a difficult conversationalist, I would suggest. He's not going to be a, a huge bundle of laughs. Uh, a Maya of Yavanna uh, will have, in all likelihood, a, a big liking of nature and, who knows, may travel around via Rabbit Express uh, or not, as the case right. may be, Mr. Jackson. I am talking specifically to you. Um, <laughs> I, I like ads that you point that out. I think there's uh, that's a nice way to start. The idea that the Maya are not... It doesn't appear that they're necessarily like assigned to a certain Valar. It's more that they would gravitate towards them based on similar interests, yes. personality traits, etc. Yeah, I think that's a better way of putting it, definitely. Um, they would have been... Maybe they'd have been stood next to each other in, in the... In the music, uh, and 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 they're part of the same, the same group, shall we say? But there is a definite, there is a definite link to a Valar. Yes. So. Okay, we're going to use that lightning strike to interject some information we left out. Uh, Ads is about to preview six important Maiar um, of the order of the Ainur, the lesser, the demigods. Uh, the Valar are numbered 14, plus a Melkor. The Maiar are unnumbered, uh, but we're to assume there are lots of them. They make up the courts and the peoples uh, and the servants 
of the Valar, and there are dozens, hundreds of them even, all of varying powers and, uh, and importance. But the, uh, the six ads about the preview top the list in terms of the most powerful and most important of the uh, demigods. Right, with that established, there's, there's six chief ones, as I, as I touched on. They are, and I apologise if I get the pronunciation wrong. Oh, we will. We're, we're going <laughs> to trip all over them, so just everybody be ready for that. Don't yell at okay. us, or do. Yeah, yell at us, by all means, and tell us what we should have said. Um, Ilmare. Now, she is the handmaiden of Varda. So one of the greatest uh, of the Valar, and the elves probably a most loved uh, Maya. She's effectively, she's been delegated to be the guardian of the stars. So that's quite an amazing job um, and, and image, if you think. So when you, when you look up into the night sky, you know, the guardian of those stars is the handmaiden of Varda, and she's called Ilmare. Nice um, congruency there, the elves having a preference for uh, Varda amongst all the Vilar. It's sort of a nice parallel that amongst the Maiar, that she, her, her uh, Maiar would be the preferred. Yeah, wonderful. All right, well, the next one is Aeonwe. Now, we've touched on Tolkus and Orome, and Aonwe is arguably the mightiest of all of them. In the actual text, it says he has no rival in battle. Um, he's the herald of Manwe, he's his standard bearer. He's the chap that would, that would uh, be very much associated with Manwe and uh, would lead the line. He's the owner of a trumpet and it says one blast of his trumpet brings terror to his foes as it precedes the coming of the Valar. Now, oh there it is again. Yeah, exactly. The, you know the musical connection, uh, very much the, uh, the horn that we've just spoke of. Aeon Wei has a trumpet, so yeah, it's a consistent it's a consistent line throughout the book, and what I wondered was if anyone's listening who has read or has watched uh, Game of Thrones, you'll know who I mean when I say Grey Worm. Now, Grey Worm is effectively um, the the person in charge of the armies, and he's a fantastic fighter, but he's not a warmonger. He's professional. He's he's directed by someone above, and I would say that is Aonwe. Right, now we have Ose and Uanin. And they are probably the best known to the elves. Ose. I think he'd say it like this. Ossay, dude. <laughs> you, you, you've nailed it, James, because Ossay is without a doubt the god of surfing. 
He is servant to Olmo. He is the master of the waves. Uh, he takes absolute delight and pleasure in the winds of Manway when it allows him to storm. So he is he is he's in patrol around the coast. He's not out there with Olmo in the deep waters. He's in the he's in the coastal waters, and he probably enjoys some heavy metal partying. He likes to ignore his boss, Olmo, when he does. He's definitely got a tem tempestuous streak, and I would suggest in the music he probably played the drums. Um, there is a point in the chapter where it becomes clear that Melkor actually attempts to convert Osse. Um, he promises him the realm of Olmo because he wants to be able to control the water. It's something that he's never been able to do, and I think we find out later on a bit more about that. But initially, he was actually persuaded. Uh, Melkor persuaded him to, to rebel, and his actions led to damaging coastal storms that crashed upon the coastline of Arda, and I would suggest that has helped to shape the landmass. It's another example of, of the great beauty that's come out of Melkor's attempt at evil. Um, if you think of the coastline around the world, I mean, certainly in the UK, there are some beautiful coastlines, rugged, uh, jagged, jagged coastlines, and that sure. is Osse. So, you know, adds, I, I, that was perfect. I'm going to just, uh, as you were speaking, it occurred to me, um, Melkor offers him the realm of his sort of boss, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the next rank up in power, because... To Melkor, that's what everybody must want, right? Because that's yeah. what he wants. Yeah. He wants to be Iluvatar. He wants to step up. So it's you know the thing he's going to offer is what he wants. So I think it's really you know he didn't offer like Manway's job. He didn't offer um, you know dominion over whatever else. He offered like um, a promotion, a direct promotion, his boss's job, uh, which I don't know maybe. No, I love that. Interesting. No, I love that. That's uh, that's Someone a really good too, catch. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to say um, is it's it just, as you described it, it reminded me that these um, gods, these Valar and Maiar, are created to explain the natural phenomenon, right? They're a mythology. Yeah. So they're, they're when I think about it, I'm like, when a fisherman's looking at the, at the, uh, at the rough storm and he's like, oh, we can't fish uh, along the coast today, um, who are we going to blame for this? Well, I don't want to blame the god of the sea because the sea's too important. But like, let's let's have a sub guy to blame, kind of thing. Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I see the rea the breakdown of how men have created mythologies in the past, and we assign certain things so we can worship and pray to and blame um, for the way weather works. And I, I, I just love that the way Asse fits into uh, into nature. No, definitely. I mean, he's he's effectively he's erosion. Isn't he? If yeah. You, if you think of it, he's he's the fact that the house is about to fall off the cliff. He's the tide uh, yeah. coming in and out. He's the ocean. He's the big winds that come in off the sea. He's he's the undertow. Yeah, he's he's a pretty cool dude. No, he is, and um, he's uh he's married to Union. the lady of the sea, and she is an absolute uh, opposite to to Osse. They say opposites attract. Um, but she's responsible for the calm waters. Uh, the text says her hair lies spread through all waters under the sky. 
and she persuaded at the prayer of Ole to calm Ose down. And he, he then sought pardon from Olmo and he's been faithful ever since. So, I mean, I, I have fallen in love with Ose. I think he's a fantastic character. Uh, he's a fantastic uh, god and he would be one of my favourites now. I like the fact that he's, he's got that rebellious streak. He, he will still storm. They, you know, he will still act, ignoring his boss, Olmo. Um, he can't be controlled at all times, but ultimately he's on the good side. Yeah, no, uh, great description too of the two um, sort of sides of how the ocean behaves and the coastline behaves. The very calm... Um, lady uh, of the waters and the, the stormy sort of, uh, like you said, the drummer, the animal, the Muppet drummer, yeah. surfer dude, yeah. um, raging party, party animal. Um, if, have either of you, I, I know May, uh, excuse me, I know ads I asked you, May, have you ever been to Rome? No, I've never been. I would love to go. Okay, well, when yes. you go, because everybody, everybody should, and I know uh, you have, uh, yeah. and I know uh, Sophie has yeah. uh, ads. <laughs> But when you're in Rome, go to the Trevi Fountain, because it's, it's one of the highlights, and you'll see a, an incredible statue. And Google it now, because you're probably not headed to Rome tomorrow. And as you look at the statue, you'll see there's two horses. Uh, and these two horses have two incredibly, uh, wildly different demeanors. One is calm and docile and tame, and the other is wild and bucking and out of control. And these two statues are reined in by, I think it's Oceanus, um, I can't remember exactly which mythology, uh, which god, if that's supposed to be exactly Neptune or, or whoever in the middle, um, taming both horses, but mm. uh, they represent each mood of the sea, which I always love when, so when I got told that story by the tour guide when we were walking past it, I thought, like, that's just a beautiful way to look at the ocean, how it's, it's not one entity, it's like it has, it has two personalities in a way. It definitely does. And I mean, we've all, we've all been to the beach, to the... Uh, to look out at sea and we've seen it when it's a mill pond and then you know at other times you wouldn't go near the near the beach because of of risk of being you know blown away so it's just lovely how in Tolkien's writing in his in his characterization he gives these these real life um applicable uh, moments I guess yeah, I think that's right. I think I, it's a, coming back to that applicability word. I don't. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything um, more beautiful than the idea of, of the moods of the ocean either. I think that's one of the. That's why we're, we're drawn to it. It can be. It's. It can be hit or miss, and it, it changes uh, on a whim, and, and it's so unpredictable. May is. We've been. I feel like we've been droning on and on. I've been listening. Uh, anything I've you been listening add? in, you guys. It's such uh, beautiful things that you're you're mentioning. Um, the way I'd like to chime in into this conversation is to say that what I find fascinating is the elves or men's relationship to these gods. Um, it's, it is said that Ulmo lives alone in the ocean. He seldom comes on land. He does not mm-hmm. um, 
take on the shape of a man very often. And when, when he does walk on earth, the children of Iluvatar sh tremble. They are taken by fear. And I think it's, it's, um, it rings true in the, in the sense that we are fascinated with the awesomeness of the ocean of water itself. But at the same time, we fear it because uh, it could be deceitful, it could be treacherous, um, it could definitely take your life away. And um, in the same way that it is beautiful and it should be worshipped as a force of nature, uh, it can also be very destructive. For example, like think of a tsunami wave or something, you know, so it's, um, I think it's it's a complex relationship that, that men have with uh, this aspect of nature. Um, yeah, I like two of the words you used in there, May. It's deceitful, and it can be deceitful and misleading. Like, you can head out on a, what looks like a beautiful afternoon, only to be, you know, <laughs> unpleasantly surprised that uh, something completely unexpected happens to you and your little boat, uh, not, you know, with, within no time at all. I think it can be very misleading and deceitful. Right. That's, I, I like that idea a lot. Well done. Um, Guys, I, I don't want to um, alarm you, but there's no chance we're going to keep this to an hour tonight. Um, I know ads, you, you were betting that we weren't, and uh, you were right. So <laughs> let's point that out and say, let's shoot for less than three hours and keep on flapping <laughs> away. <laughs> no, we'll do our best, but uh, right we're not going to do an hour, and I guess I guess that's become the theme. So let's let's always pretend like we're going to try to keep it to an hour, but, yeah. but we'll always do 90 minutes. Sounds good. Okay. Did you want to mention uh, maybe the most, um, the Maiar that has the most influence on the stories to come? Yes, well, there's there's two more. There's two more. There's there's Melian. Now, oh, you're right. Well, actually, she arguably has just as well, <laughs> just as much as, yeah. as the one I was thinking of. But go on. Yeah, so there's Melian. Now, she's, she's a Maiar who's served both Varna and Este. Um, so she has lived in, in Lorian. Where, where James mentioned before, and she used to tend the trees, and she's very highly associated with nightingales and birds. Um, and she actually, she arrives in Middle-earth, and as we will discover later on, uh, as, we, as we go through the Silmarillion, she finds herself an elf king to marry, and they have a very, very famous daughter. They have an incredibly important bloodline. It is incredibly important, and you know it's it's quite an interesting thing because it's proof that a Maya can can reproduce. She you know she has a child with an elf. Um, Who's the daughter? Who's now, the daughter? Spoiler uh, alert! Spoiler. Do you, do you know the answer, May? Um, I think I may. I think. All right. Well, we're we're gonna keep it a but secret I'm not sure. um, from you and from. From people who haven't gone that far yet, but uh, <laughs> but, she's, she's but you, you know what you have you have a copy you sh you shared a copy of a book that has uh, yeah. her name in the title with me today. Um, oh, so okay. So that, that's the answer for you, but but not our listeners. All right, all right. But here, here, um, here's a question, guys: the Valar can subcreate, whilst the Maya can procreate? Question mark. Yeah, I liked that when you when you texted that to me this week. Ads, I think it might be the distinction. Like, what's the distinction between the Valar and the Maiar? And I think that like it may be not the only one, but it seems to be that the Valar have the power to um, create races and 
knights, uh, dwarves, uh, etc. Yeah. And it seems from and I, correct us if we're wrong, but we don't know any Maiar who um, have created except through procreation uh, to create life. So yeah, that might be the distinction. Ads well picked up. Thank you very much. So that then means we have one very famous Maya left to talk about. Um, and you've all you all know who this person is, or you will do. Um, it's Gandalf, but in the Silmarillion he is referred to as Alorin. And he isn't really mentioned in the Silmarillion. He, he, he's, he's there right at the start. He, he, he's described as, as one of the six important Maya, but then, uh, as is his nature, he, he doesn't really then come up again. He, he's meant to have been in Middle-earth and wandering around, probably unknown to a lot of the elves and men, and he, he, he watches and he waits and he, he bides his time until he's needed. Um, but he's one of the five Istari, one of the five wizards that was sent to Middle-earth. Uh, we've got Saruman, we've got Radagast, we've got the two blue wizards, and he is considered the greatest. Uh, and we've touched on this before. He, he lived in the gardens of Lorien. He was very close to Nienna, so he learnt uh, pity and compassion and understanding, which are all massive key parts of his, his character and so, so useful and helpful for, for parts of the story as we move forward. He's the wearer of the Ring of Fire, which is the third elf ring. It's called Naya, and it was given to him by Kurdan. Mm, nice ads, beautiful. Oh, Lauren. Oh, boy, we're done. Yeah, we are. We're of the Maiar. Okay, well, um, Asse, dude. Yeah. Hey, you're up. Yes. Of the enemies. Yes, guys, uh, let me crack my knuckles. Beat. Hold on a second, let me crack my knuckles. Mm-hmm. Let's stretch here. Now for the fun part, guys. <laughs> the baddest with the mostest. So, uh,. I was a little disappointed when I read this chapter because only a page and, what, a third was dedicated to the bad guys. And let's face it, without bad guys, it's only rainbows and butterflies. <laughs> so... You know, it, it's funny, when I, made, when I broke down the notes, May, I noticed that, and it's true and not, because Melkor actually dominates uh, all three beats. He's mentioned over and over again and compared to all of the... Valar and Maiar, or many of them, as they're described. Yeah. Mentioned in passing, perhaps? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I just I think you get a good insight <laughs> into him. Because, you know, mentioned it, mentioned that he's super jealous of Ole, for example, yes, yes, um, yes. in that section. So I, I just, I thought, I thought that uh, it was neat, and uh, it showed his importance. It's not that it was neat. It shows his importance that he is the reference point when yes. basically they describe everybody else. That's right. So uh, let's do a little refresher here on who Melkor is, or lovingly called Melky Baby. So uh, <laughs> Melkor is the mightiest of the Ainur. He is the troublemaker, capital T, capital M. Um, you might know him as the guy who ruins symphonies with bad guitar riffs since the break of time. So he's the... <laughs> He's the guy who just likes to disrupt peace, um, likes to shift the balance. Um, to the elves, to the Eldar, he's known as, can we say this as, let's say, 
Uh, he's known as He Who Shall Not Be Named. Yes. Oh, yeah. Can we say yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, when they do end up naming him, they don't call him Melkor, but they call him Morgoth. Which I think is like even more of a, can we say that, badass name? Which is impressive because Melkor was like, you're like, that's pretty bad. That's, pre- that's pretty hardcore. He sounds like a bad dude. Then, you're, then he just wa- somehow, Tolkien manages to one up it. Yeah. With Morgoth, which sounds like. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's a, you don't want to mess with him. How many death metal bands took their names from Morgoth? I mean, it just sounds like, you know, you got that goth. Right? You got that, that edge at the end, you know? It's just, I don't know. It's, it screams black, doesn't it? It screams darkness. It screams screaming into a mic. It screams, I don't know, it screams like anger, you know? It, and it just goes to show the ramifications of Tolkien's influence on, on our, you know, in, throughout the arts, like in the 20th century and 21st century. I don't know. I find that he's been such an influence on all things uh, fantasy, for sure. But, um, uh, I mean, it's it's not a secret, but bands like, for example, like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, um, uh, some other more obscure bands that I don't know about, but uh, that I am aware of, and and especially in the the metal, heavy metal um, um, types of music, will uh, oftentimes have texts that relate to um, Tolkien's body of work, you know? So mm-hmm. I think it's yeah. pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, headbanging for Morgoth here. Um, Much better. <laughs> so what does Melkor want? What does he want? At the beginning of time, he wants the creator's light. He wants Iluvatar's light. He wants, once Arda is created, he wants Earth as his own he wants lordship over everything so over life forms over matter um and he wants this in pure greed he doesn't care for it he just wants to own it and when he fails to get what he wants he becomes consumed by anger Mm. and his anger soon turns to violence and tyranny Mm -hmm. and lies and contempt so all the negative stuff right yeah too true Mm -hmm. um yeah wherever he goes he fills the space around himself with fear um he is a very seductive character because he's able to um manipulate uh spirits or other uh, lesser Ainur. Um, in this case, we talked about earlier about Ose, so he was able to manipulate Ose to a certain point. Um, he did manipulate another Maiar that we're going to talk about in, in just a little bit, uh, who is going to shape and define basically the third age of uh, Middle-earth, right? Uh, Big time, Yes. Yep. Yep. For... To me, when I when I when I read uh, about Melkor, I find there's some great threads between him and Aule, and um, I don't know if you guys see it as well um, in the way that both Aule and Melkor have a desire to create 
and they're both independent and they're both skilled but it's all in the way that they create or they wish to create that they defer so mm, yeah um in a sense melkor is envious of other people's creations and um he is so rebellious that he does not want to subdue his creation to Iluvatar or submit his creation to God basically the way that Auli has done when he created the dwarves um, when we talk about Melkor and his influence or his his legacy uh, we take a look at his minions and um, uh, the way that Melkor nurtured his minions or came, uh, created his minions, well, he, he kind of did it in a way that was mocking Iluvatar's creation. So Iluvatar created the children of Iluvatar. He created the elves and men. And Melkor, being envious of this, uh, corrupted or perverted the idea of, of a race and created his own that we're going to see in a minute, the race of orcs, Right. Yeah, it's, it's it's shocking what he does there, really, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, it's he's taken this beautiful, this beautiful race of elves, and he's turned it into something as horrible as an orc, and and that would have been uh, not something that would have happened overnight either. Right. No, and and that's tough to track its way through. I'm I'm glad you we're going to touch on it because the orcs are so interesting, but it's hard to to find. Uh, a linear path of how the orcs were created depending which reference you look at you get sort of different versions but Mm. yeah it all boils down to the corrupting of something beautiful into something horrible yeah yeah and this time there is no there is no beauty through this corruption you know so sometimes we talk about how Melkor can corrupt uh, rain or water into you know ice or uh, mm-hmm, a storm, mm-hmm. but there is still beauty there. When it gets to the orcs, there's no beauty. It's uh, it's a desecration um, of it's a desecration of a, of a life, basically. Well, Shagrat's mother would have something to say about that, but <laughs> I see your point. <laughs> so very good. Um, May I, I think, yeah, no, I think I hadn't, th- I hadn't considered that before, that uh, you're right, most, most of the time what you just said is absolutely true. The corruptions led to, like, accidental improvements, and not, not in that case at all. Right. Um, moving on to Malcor's minions, because if you're going to be um, taking over the world, you need to have some people to do it for you, right? So uh, yep. in this case, um, <laughs> Malcor's minions... Uh, include some little guys that you might be familiar with, Stuart, Kevin, and Bob. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know. Could, could minions really be that bad? I don't know. Was Gru that should really be dis- Despicable Me 4. Despicable Me 4, yes. Melkor just the ends Mor- up The Morgoth be... edition. <laughs> Morgoth as Gru's, uh, what, uh, third twin brother or something? Or <laughs> triplet brother? <laughs> Um, yeah. So uh, the the first minions that we'll talk about are are the Balrogs, our our favorites, I guess. Um, yeah, they're awesome. They're also yeah. called the Vala. Oh, guys, the Vala Raukar, Vala Rukar. Uh, is that how you would say it? Uh, yeah, the first one you. I, I think I'd, I'd say Vala Raukar. Vala Maybe I'm probably wrong. Yes. Uh, and these are Maiar. 
So the Valor Rockar are actually Maiar, associated with uh, another Maiar. Um, this one being Arian, who guides the sun. So interesting name right there. Um, so Arian being the Maiar who guides the sun and these Balrogs gravitating towards towards the sun. And I guess it doesn't come as a surprise since these beings are made out of uh, fire, mostly. Um, shadow and smoke. and um, Shadow and flame. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense that they would... They, they'd gravitate towards the sun towards the sun but again being corrupted by melkor uh this association this association with the sun is being perverted into something uh something evil so in this case uh humanoid beings that are about twice as high as men who crack whips of flames and wield swords uh as you can all remember probably from uh Peter Jackson's excellent depiction of Balrogs with wings. Right, James? <laughs> yeah, they were a little bigger than twice the size of men, too, but the size varies as well. So we, we'll leave that open to interpretation because bigger is sometimes more fun to look at on screen. Oh, for sure. Uh, but this this just made me uh, realize something because uh, it, it does mention that uh, Balrogs uh, live in the deep or hide in the, the roots of the earth when their leader is is absent so as we've seen in again um in uh, uh in moria um i just wonder as to why tolkien decides to put a lot of his creatures uh underground for example hobbits live in holes underground orcs hide in the bowels of mountains and in inside tunnels and so do dwarves so i just wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that as to um, why so many creatures dwell inside the earth? Mm. I think there's maybe an unrelated specific answer for each of those scenarios. I don't think there's one reason necessarily, and maybe, maybe ads will come up with one great reason that explains all of them, but I can come up with really um, plausible reasons for individually for all of the races and people you just mentioned. Like, the the dwarves association because of what we'll tackle in a couple of chapters about how they were created and where they, where they spent a lot of time dormant. Um, you know, so it makes sense for me that they would gravitate towards the earth. Uh, contrarily, the Balrogs, uh, wouldn't have originally gravitated towards, um, being deep underground, right? Their association was, was with a body, a heavenly body. Right. Um, but, uh, they were corrupted and it makes sense to me that the, their corrupter would want to keep them, as far away from, from who he corrupted them from as possible. So, you know, I think there's individual reasons for those things. I, I can't think of, like, an overriding theme, though. Ads? Well, um, no. I mean, the only thing, I suppose, thinking about The Hobbit, thinking about Lord of the Rings, I mean, less so in The Silmarillion, because as we'll, as we'll go on to see, there's, there's an abundance of these uh, demons and... and uh, minions, you know, there's lots of Stuart Kevs and Bobs running around the place. But you, when it comes to those three in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you know, the the, the more well-known texts, the Hobbits are a race that are almost forgotten about. They're 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 not as well known. You know, the the tree birds haven't haven't heard of them or forgotten about them. Uh, Smog has never smelled a Hobbit. You've got 
the Balrogs, who by that point in the story, they're not apparent anymore. You know, the one in Moria was was hidden, uh, and and people didn't even realise that that it was still there. Uh, the dwarfs didn't have a home, but but would have been in the mountains at the time. So that's the only thing I can think of that that maybe connects them all, that they're almost all forgotten races. Hmm. That's interesting. I like that. Nice hat. Thanks. I knew there was a reason we uh, put you on salary. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Don't cash that check till next week, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, May, we jumped in and, and, uh, and interrupted you there, but did you want to continue on with... Uh, more of the bad guys. Uh, yeah, well, just going back to the orcs a little bit. So we, we mentioned earlier that Morgoth uh, corrupted the elves to create the orcs. And um, when we talk about, like, the three races in Middle-earth, we think about elves, men, dwarves. But there is really, like, a fourth race because the race of the orcs is distinct from the other three. And they do have kind of a subculture, or can we call it a culture? I mean, they have their own poetry and mm-hmm. songs yes. and, um, you know, hierarchy. Right, and there are also a couple of different distinctions in different books between goblins and orcs uh, in language, but I think overall they're basically the same thing. Uh, do you guys have, have you guys sort of concluded that as well? Um, something su- I know the Yurikai are something different, right. but I, th- I, I could be wrong, but I, I think I read somewhere that basically the goblins in, uh, from the Misty Mountains and orcs from the Lord of the Rings are essentially the same thing, but I, I could be wrong. I think the term is interchangeable. Um, however, I, I also read somewhere that uh, the orcs created initially, let's say in the First Age, versus the orcs of the Third Age would not necessarily be the same. Um, as time slips by, they seem to be more cowardly, uh, especially in the Third Age now that Sauron's been absent for a while. They're kind of left um, masterless or without a greater sense of direction or purpose until um, Sauron returns or you know makes his influence felt again. So Yeah, no, that, okay. yeah that makes sense. Um, yeah. Also, um, a different category of bad guys here, which, uh, which, uh, I personally like, <laughs> are dragons, right? Uh, so, uh, we see a Melkor and Morgoth, um, corrupting or creating dragons. Did he create the dragons? Or did he corrupt the dragons that already existed? Um, not sure there, but, uh, nonetheless, he uses dragons, uh, fire-breathing dragons, or also cold worms, as they are described, uh, which are basically kind of earth worms, wingless snakes. Yeah, uh, imagine like a giant iguana or Komodo dragon, I guess, if you want. Uh, when you see artist depictions of them, they just, yeah, they look like, like worms in the sense they're just giant bodies with tiny legs. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, worth, worth Googling. And the first uh, renditions of dragons weren't as terrifying as, as the later ones. Yeah, you, you, you once sent me, James, didn't you? You sent me that, that 
picture which showed the relative sizes between what we think Smorg is is this huge dragon, but you compare oh, yes. it you compare it to some of the other things that that will appear. He's, and Caligon the Black. Enough yeah, said. He's quite small. Um, May yeah I, I can't I can't remember if um, the dragons uh, were corrupted uh, already existing beasts or not, or if he sort of conjured them himself. But either way, you're right. The first ones didn't have wings, and I think the first ones weren't fire drakes yet either. Um, they were sort of just big worms with legs and teeth. Didn't they call them cold drakes? Cold drakes? Cold something? I think Mage just said it. Cold worms? Yeah, cold worms. Yeah. That's the term I came across. There you go. Um, Good stuff. Last but not least, guys, the most prominent, Sauron. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the general. Yeah. Sauron uh, was a mayor. Uh, he was known as, hmm, Myron? Is that right? Myron? He would be yes. kind of the Anakin Skywalker in the story. Uh, Myron was associated with Aule. Um, again, interesting here, the parallel between Aule and Melkor. The, uh, the, the, there's, there's a fine line dividing those two. And uh, it's going to be... Yeah, they were most alike, it says in the text, doesn't it? It says they were, their powers and, and, you know, personas were most akin to each other. So it'll be, it'll be pretty interesting to look at the dwarves and the orcs in the future, uh, eventually. Maybe, maybe not in the soul, but uh, later on. Uh, because there's a lot of similarities between the two groups, and yet they are different from one another, but the dwarves seem to just have... You know, the short end of the sticks sometime. Haha, <laughs> short end of the sticks. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. Uh, hey, uh, I'm going to interrupt yep. here quickly just to say that I got a message just now from Karen. Um, and I thought we told Karen we were recording. Karen, what are you doing? I told you we were recording. <laughs> Interrupting us with text. I'm just kidding. Uh, I answered her while, while, we're, uh, while we're recording here. And it's really nice to hear from you, Karen. And so I thought I'd take a minute and shout you out in the show. Uh, hopefully you're blushing and smiling uh, as we do this. But uh, thanks for sending in all the great input, uh, Karen. Hey, hey. <laughs> May. Yes. You are doing a terrific job covering the bad guys, the guys we all love to hate. And we keep saying how Melkor and Ole were similar in powers and personality, how Sauron and Ole were similar in powers and persona. So here's a question you probably didn't see coming. How were Sauron and Aule different? That's a super good one, James. Um, and I'm not sure I can fully answer this one, but um, Sauron did uh, convince the elves to forge the rings, or at least some of them. Um, did he do it himself? Was he the one who crafted the rings or he just kind of infused his malice into these rings and, and used his cunning sense of persuasion to fool people into buying into his concept? No, you're right. He tricked people into building stuff for him, basically, except for the one ring. He built that himself. Himself. Um, but you're right. Uh, he, he, yeah. I, maybe he wasn't quite as proud as Melkor, who had to do it all himself and a little more cunning. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, in a way that they would also be similar, I would think that Sauron uh, was Melkor's servant for a long while, the same way that, let's say, Ali would be Iluvatar's servant or would bow to. 
uh, a higher mm -hmm. force. So that would be like mm -hmm. also like something that would be similar between them. Um, yeah, that's true. Well, they both both recognize themselves as as a second for a long time. Right. Well, only uh, always. Well so what, what do you guys make of this then? So we know that Sauron was a, a Maya of, of Ole. And we know that Ole likes to create, shall we say. Um, uh, there's actually there's, there's, there's evidence later on in the story which shows how he does rebel against the Luvatar. He's got that in him. He wants to create to the extent that he will actually rebel. Um, now, Sauron being linked to Ole, it's almost like he's the he's the bad boy part of, of Ole. So he 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 takes that rebellious streak that one step further and actually is con then converted is is persuaded to to follow Melkor rather than, than to stay on the good side with, with Ole. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it, does. it does. It just made me realize something. Um, why did Ose not succumb? Mm -mm. Why is it that Myron succumbed but not Ose? You and in... And yeah. I'm thinking because Ose had a woman in his life. And she... Bingo. She pleaded with him. She, a calm influence, right, too. You know, maybe maybe Myron had no one in his life. Maybe there was no one to tip the scale or to kind of soothe or assuage his, you know... No, that, that, his that's a brilliant... Street. Yeah, that's a brilliant spot. Because without that without that person just to, to bring him back, to, to stop him from going over the edge, from crossing that line... Yeah, I mean, Osei was Osei was off, wasn't he? He was gone. He he was rebelling. He was he was siding with 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 Melkor. And then yep. it was only Unin who who said, "Look, you know, calm down and and go and seek pardon." And Sauron never had that. Right, Sauron. Sauron was a he was a loner probably. Myron was was alone. And again, the theme of being alone foreshadows something disastrous as opposed to being part of a community or a, th a team of people. So mm -hmm. perhaps... Yeah, yeah. No, very I like few that. characters uh, benefit from some solitary. Uh, Ulmo being uh, maybe maybe the exception. But you know what? Um, I don't see it that way because I find Ulmo, even though it says that he's alone, he's also everywhere at once because he is water. So he may, you may have a feeling that he's retreated, that he doesn't go to council or whatnot, but at the same time, he's present in the air, he's present on the ground, he's present underground, you know, so he's always ramified through the, through the world, you know, so... He's almost, he, he's almost the least lonely, isn't he? When you think of it well, like that. Yes and no, Bill, right? Because his, all the waters um, are his dominion, but he never goes, he never spends time... Um, in he no, Valinor he doesn't stay in one place, does he? With the others, no. Uh, 
So I think that's the distinction. But you're right. Like, in a way, he's always in touch. And that's maybe the difference. Right. Is though he, he, he has a solitary at the same time, he still has connection. He's Whereas, not, soli- he's uh, not solitary like Mandos. He's, he's solitary in a, in a very open way. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. That's, right. well, that's a good distinction. Yes. Um, and actually, it, it sort of transitions us nicely. And I might, I might go there first and just uh, do th- skip um, out of order since we're talking about Umo being um, all over the place. And, and we'll close out with mythology. So well, why don't we take it from there, guys? Is there anything you wanted to add to about the enemies before we move on, May? Did I, did I cut you off and move on too fast? No, we were right there. Um, yeah. Well done. Ads, anything you wanted to add? No, no, I'm good. That, I thought that was brilliant. Well done, May. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant, May. Well done. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. We did it. Uh, and we're going to do something next that will extend the show well beyond uh, 90 minutes. But it was inspired by something I read about Ulmo in the Valakenta chapter. And it inspired me to think about Bilbo's finding of the One Ring in The Hobbit. Yeah, so Ulmo, it says in the text, and this was interesting, this brings me to something, uh, a question that we're going to just toss around for a little bit. And it's not that I think I found a secret answer that nobody found before. That's not how I'm looking at this. Um, I am looking at it uh, more in the sense, uh, I think there's a neat little fit, that you, a, jig, a jigsaw puzzle piece that does fit here, even if it wasn't intended. Um, so let me read something first, and then I'll take it from there. It says in uh, the chapter, For all seas, lakes, rivers, fountains, and springs are in his government, so that the elves say that the spirit of Ulmo runs in all the veins of the world. Thus, news comes to Ulmo, even in the deeps of all the needs and griefs of Arda, which otherwise would be hidden from Manway. So I read that the other day, and it got me thinking. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you a series of leading questions, guys. Um, okay. when, when Bilbo uh, is underground uh, in the Misty Mountains, where is it that he finds the ring? Okay, he finds the ring in the passage, doesn't he? He doesn't in find it. Yeah, he finds it in the passageway before he meets Gollum. Right. He's on his way near, nearing the lake, and he finds it on the ground in the tunnel. Yeah. Now, uh, when you read the books or watched the movies, did you get the impression that Bilbo, when he was in possession of the ring, um, did you get the, the impression that he um, ever lost track of it? I would suggest no, no, because he was always looking for it. Right, and he'd only owned it for, you know... Uh, a few years to decades. Gollum was in possession of it um, for uh, many decades, maybe even a couple hundred years. And the effect of the ring only got worse over time, right? Mm -hmm. Agreed. Right. So where is it that Gollum goes uh, to get the ring when you're reading Riddles in the Dark, when he decides he's going to eat this hobbit and he's, he's tired with the game, where is it he goes to look for the ring? He goes on his little island in the middle of the lake. Yeah, that's correct. He's got a little, little hiding hole. Yeah, the last place that he thinks he had that ring um, is on the island. And it says in the chapter that he killed a goblin earlier that day with the ring. Um, and in my mind, it seems inconceivable um, once I go down this road, this little game I'm playing, it seems inconceivable to me that Gollum would um, kill this orc or goblin, eat it, 
and lose track of the ring and, and be so satisfied with his meal that he, that he wouldn't check where it was and thank it a million times and be so happy with the precious and put it back on his little island. So the fact that Bilbo found the ring in the tunnel got me thinking. When I read that part of the Silmarillion, I thought, is it possible um, that Ulmo was waiting for an opportunity to get the One Ring out from under the Misty Mountains? He was so close to it, being in that little lake, which was probably stream-fed, um, uh, both uh, leading in and leading out of it, um, but he, he, must, he could have been waiting for an opportunity to get it out, and when he saw Bilbo coming, uh, he could have taken form and, and either thrown it down the tunnel, taken it from, from uh, the hiding place on the island, um, taken human form or, I don't know, the form of a wave hand. I don't, I don't know how it works exactly. Um, and, and just pitched it onto, onto the land in front of Bilbo's feet um, so that Bilbo were to find it, pick it up, and take it. Um, I think that's a possibility of divine intervention, a way to swing the tides of things that... Um, Literally. Maybe... Do I really think that? No, no, literally swing um, the tides of things. <laughs> the tides. <laughs> um, so do I really think that's what happened? No, not necessarily. But does it fit? Is it possible with what we know um, about how everything works? Is that something, is that jigsaw puzzle? Could you, could you punch it in there? What do you think, Ads? Yeah, I do. I, I, when you said this to me, it was like a little eureka moment. Now, it's something I would never have never have grasped in a million years if, if I hadn't have read The Silmarillion. But because you have that backstory now, because you understand that the main players, you you could very easily appreciate the the gods wanting to guide the direction of that ring, of, of somebody that they suddenly had found, you know, entering that mountain who was ideal to get that ring out of Gollum's possession. And when right. you... Uh, a force that was innately good. Yeah, and when, when you said this... Well, when you said this, it got me thinking with regards to... And I'll ask you some questions now. So, Isildur. When, when Isildur had the ring, how did he lose the ring? Right, it comes off in the water. Yeah. Huh. That's, and, you, and it's, I, I wish you told me this before, but I'm glad you didn't in a way, because my reaction, I, w- I wish we were videoing. Wow, it, it gets pulled off in the water. Yeah, it stays in the water. Now, it stays in the water, my suggestion would be, because Ulmo knows that that's the best place for it. And there's no need to, to worry about it. What, what then happens... Well, Isildur was corrupted, was already turned to the side of darkness at this point. So did it slip off his finger, or was it coaxed off? Yeah. I mean, did Ulmo affect even the, um, the losing of the One Ring at that point in the story? Indeed. Indeed. And he put it, in fact, if we're going along those lines, he then puts it in the hands of hobbits. Yes, because he puts it into Gollum, effectively. The hobbit Gollum is the one that, well, he, he's the one that That's takes right. it off uh, his deagle, isn't it? Yeah. That's so, right, Smeagol and Deagle find it. And Deagle, of the two of them, seems to be the better-hearted one. So Ulmo put it in, into the hands of, of a good hobbit, even, if, if we're going along this sort of yeah. little ride that we're, that we're playing. Uh, yeah, I like how that all fits together, Ads. Well done. I should, uh, Ads, probably clarify that I don't think that uh, the ring of power having a mind of its own should be a concept that's just tossed 
uh, aside idly. I'm not doing that. Uh, this isn't my new interpretation of events. I just thought it was a fun little way to look at the story, given that Ulmo chapter from the Silmarillion about uh, how he could peek into all the deeps of the world and protect Arda from harm. It just, you know, got my brain running a little bit. If I can just say something, uh, these events all line up beautifully when you look at them with 2020 vision. But as the, yeah. these events unfold and these catastrophic moments happen, so there is chance comes upon these characters, you know, um, they always have the choice to act upon this chance or not. And it's the, the actual action of stepping up to this chance and grabbing it and, and using it that's what defines what happens next and it's and, yes. and we should not take away from Gandalf or Thorin or Bilbo for example we shouldn't take away from their actions because even though they have moments of luck it still resides within their free will for them to step up to this luck and use it yes so, definitely definitely May it's that's a that's a really important point. Doing nothing is also a choice, and they, they don't choose to do nothing. Right. No, no. Um, but every time there's a eucatastrophic event, um, I like the idea that May, like May pointed out, then there's, there's action to be had, and eucatastrophe on its own isn't just good luck. It's you good luck followed by uh, action on the part of the, uh, uh, of the story movers. Hmm. So let's, let's use her good point to lead into her great section. Yay. Uh, called Mythology. Welcome to Mythology, a time capsule where we explore the work of the professors through the lens of world myths. Let's talk about Aya. Iluvatar said the Ainur's vision being and set it amid the void and the secret fire was sent to burn at the heart of the world, and it was called Ea. In the Professor's Legendarium, Ea is the universe. Arda, on the other hand, is the first version of the Earth, as a flat disk circled by an ocean, walled off by the walls of night. Now, let's take a look at Norse cosmology related as it is in the poetic Edda. Middle-earth is almost a verbatim translation from Midgard, which is the flat plain where men live in the Norse cosmology. Mid means middle, guard means enclosure. It could stretch the meaning of enclosure to land or dwelling or living place. So in this case, Middle-earth. The land of Midgard is also circled by a great ocean which in turn is cinched by a serpent monster, Loki's son, the great sea serpent, Jormungand. Norse cosmology is comprised of nine worlds, nine being an odd number, the last of the single digit numbers, and for the Norse tradition, nine held a significant amount of power. It is referred throughout the Poetic and Prose Edda as having some kind of numerological powers. Tolkien also has an affinity for odd numbers and we'll be discussing that on our episode 4 of the Green Door podcast. Each world in Norse cosmology is populated by a different race. Notable races are 
the gods, the men, elves, including light and dark elves, dwarves, and giants. Sound familiar? Perhaps. Now let's go back to the Valaquenta and take a look at Manwe and Varda, the king and queen of Arda. As we've come to know, Manwe holds dominion over the wind, clouds, and birds. Manwe and Varda live in the tallest tower of a place called Tanikwatil. And this castle or fortress is also situated on the highest mountain called Oyolose. Oyolose? Oyolose, got it. From his throne, Manwe sees all, and with Varda at his side, he hears everything in Arda. Now, let's take a look at Norse myth. In his silver hall called Walaskjall, Odin and his wife Frigg sit on their throne. And from this vantage point, Odin sees all within the Nine Worlds. Odin has two ravens, Hugin and Muni. Each roam the worlds, listening and watching. Every day, they bring back tidings, forever keeping the Allfather informed of all matters within the worlds. Let me ask you then, is it a coincidence that Manwe should also command birth? Let's move on to Ulmo. Ulmo, Lord of Water. His spirit is said to run in all veins of the world. In the Celtic tradition, Celts hold water as a mystical force of nature, a threshold between the worlds, a gateway to the land of fairy and to the land of the gods. Tolkien mentions the song of the Ainur can still be heard in the deep of the oceans where Ulmo dwells alone. To Celts, great places of mysticism reside where water laps on shore, where mist hovers on water. And out of all the elements, water is the only one which is found underground, above ground, and in the sky. And it is well, it is the only element that occurs in all of its three phases at once. In this case, ice, flowing water, and vapor. Going back to the Valaquenta, Yavanna and Uli. Yavanna is Uli's wife. She is the goddess of fertility. At times, will appear as a woman clad in green, or as a tall tree kissed by the sun with golden dew dripping from her branches. It is said that where the dew falls, green corn grows. In First Nation mythology, corn has a central importance as a main source of nutrition. And so, the three sisters, corn, squash, and bean, thrive under the sun, much like Yavanna. They are symbols of plentiful crops and fertility. Important to note that Europeans only became acquainted with corn once they voyaged across the Atlantic. It begs the question, I wonder if Leif Erikson was amongst the first Europeans to enjoy maize in and around the year 1000 when he crossed into the Americas, 500 years before Chris Columbus. So this has been your segment of Mythology. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show.
And that was the vlog from this week. Uh, hats off, May. Let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, was was that fun to put together for you? I know you love the mythology stuff, but I also know I also know uh, research is work. So uh, was that like a labor of love, or uh, how, how much of that felt like work to you? Because it looked like work to um, me. I was itching to get that stuff together. Uh, when I read new segments in the Cimmerillion, for me, it just resonates almost instantly with my points of references and I I was so happy to put this up together uh, there was a bit of research involved but um, not too too much uh, just a couple of odd Norse words here and there um, I'm actually looking forward to uh, coming up with new segments with new parallels which might just you know open your mind to different uh, possibilities different theories as well because Let's put it together. This is all applicability. So this is my take on how I perceive this mythology as um, relating to other kinds of myths and whatnot. You know. So uh, also to our listeners, if ever you guys pick up on something that reminds you of something else, by all means, give us a shout out and let us know uh, how uh, you connect with uh, these different um, uh, theories. Yes, definitely. Uh May, one of the things you, you started off with there was the similarities between uh, the original forms uh, of Arda and uh, in the Norse mythology, uh, their cosmology. I didn't know that they were so similar with the flat plain and the sea and the, like, it's, it's actually, you can, I, I did know Tolkien was, was heavily influenced or um, was a big fan of uh, those mythologies, but I didn't know that the, that the worlds themselves were so similar. And the name too, Middle Earth. Midgar, Middle yeah. Earth, yes, it's it's unbelievable, yes, for sure, and uh, this is just the beginning, guys. Uh, as we as we weave deeper into the mythology, we'll we'll extract some uh, information that is that might just blow your mind. It's um, it's quite fascinating, and and for me, um, to me rather, uh, Tolkien's work is uh, is fiction. It's fantasy. It's um, deep and colorful and so well executed in terms of world building. Um, but Norse mythology is, we have to keep in mind that this is how uh, a kind of people uh, lived by for centuries. So we're talking about uh, thousands of years to some people, this was their system of belief. This was their gods. And this is who they worshipped. And this was their take on what reality is like and um that's a that's a yeah. good point to bring up may for us it's fun stories but for for generations of people it was uh, reality and science yes. yeah uh, it was know, life. As, as best that they knew yes. it yes uh, hopefully one day i get to travel to scandinavia crossing my fingers um sweden is full of archaeological sites i'm thinking about Uppsala. Um, which is a, a, a site that was described in uh, the Middle Ages as having a grandiose temple where every nine years, nine years, uh, sacrifices were done <laughs> to the gods. Uh, nine uh, different races of being were being sacrificed um, to the gods on uh, nine, over nine days. So again, the number nine showing up uh, quite a bit. Um, 
this is just to give you a little example, but uh, so many other things uh, do pop up, and um, I'm really looking forward to putting that into video for you guys. Yeah, Tom, no, it's, uh, it was Tom very White. good and really entertaining. One last thing I want to talk about before we move away from uh, your mythology segment is the word corn. Uh, we mentioned it earlier. Uh, there was a reason I brought it up, and I'm going to uh, mention it again. I never knew, and this was brought up by um, Alan Reynolds, who, as far as I'm concerned, is about the smartest Tolkienite I know. Um, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. And he brought up the point that in many parts of the world, world the word corn um, simply refers to oats, uh, maybe barley, uh, and other grains. Um, and the heritage of the word simply means grain or seed. And most likely, the way Tolkien intended the word to be used when he uses it in his writing is not um, corn like sweet corn, uh, Native American corn, Indian corn, maize. But um, we should be picturing when he says corn, um, just fields of growing things, particularly wheat and barley. So uh, oats and barley, excuse me. So I, I thought that was just worth mentioning since it blew my mind. You guys have any comments? <laughs> All right then. <laughs> Perfect. That's fine. Um, thanks for leaving me hanging. <laughs> I will actually leave that gap. I'll edit that gap to be twice as long. Put some cricket sounds Good in job, there. Mate. Good job. I'll bring back our cricket friends. All right. Well, if anyone on Twitter thought that that was interesting, let me know. And, and now give a shout out to uh, May and or ads with the hashtag silence is golden. Okay. <clears throat> it's brilliant. All right. Um, before brilliant. we head out here. Before we, I, I put ads to work and uh, let him assign you some homework, we have a few things that we, uh, we want to say. Uh, first and foremost, um, for shouting people out, uh, I'd like to mention Kyle and Corey uh, over at the Tumbling Saber. And uh, they're the reason that this podcast exists um, basically from the get-go. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have reached out to ads and we wouldn't have reached out to May and none of it would have happened. So thanks, guys. Yeah, thank um, you. And Seconded. they're part of a team known as the Star Wars Commonwealth alongside the Nerd Room, Generation X-Wing, San Diego Sabres, Rogue Squad Pod, uh, Tatooine Sons, uh, Talk Star Wars. Uh, they're just... Uh, everybody on the page brings something awesome to the table. So if you're a Star Wars fan, go check them out. Uh, along that vein, I'm also going to mention um, Home One Hangout. Mike and Matt over Yay. at Home One Hangout. Yay, guys. They made us um, Home One homies this uh, latest episode, episode 39 solo of their podcast, another terrific um, Star Wars podcast. So we wanted to thank them for the love and uh, check, follow Mike at the Fanboy Awaits on Twitter and follow uh, Matt Spetzel at Matt Spetzel, M-A-T-T-S-P-A-E-T-Z-E-L. And also there's, there's Professor Chuckles as well there. And I was, uh, I, I was going to add Professor, Chuck, Professor, blah, 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 Professor Chuckles, but I was going to compare him to Corey and oh, say sorry. follow Professor Chuckles with a Z. <laughs> um, <laughs> next up we have Matt Keegan. Uh, Matt's just an all-around great guy who retweets and makes me laugh on a regular basis. And I wanted to give him some love along with his amazing book, Hindsight. Uh, rush out to the bookstore, buy that, read it, put it on your shelf. 
Uh, buy another copy for the people you love uh, and make them happy. So uh, go and do that right now. Uh, well, actually, listen to the end of this pod first. <clears throat> Next, uh, I want to say hi to Rob Wade, and I want to say to Rob, um, hey, buddy, I'm really sorry about your secret Santa gift, which Amazon has notified me finally shipped this week after Valentine's Day. So um, you should get it in the next four to six weeks, hopefully by Easter. And you're an awesome guy, Rob. So sorry you had to wait for that. Uh, much love. Go check out Rob Wade at uh, The Crazy Train. Um, he's got some excellent stuff going on on a bunch of platforms, Crazy Train, and also Emotionally 14. Uh, not to mention, of course, again, talk Star Wars. Love you, Rob. We're about to hear Harry Merle pick up uh, his guitar and take us out. Please go check out Harry on Twitter uh, and on YouTube at Harry Merle. Uh, and ads while he does that can you assign people some homework absolutely i can um so before i give you the actual homework please check out jeff basala at tour.com um also uh, trotter aka andrew ferguson uh who, who james mentioned before he's got an amazing collection so follow him on twitter at at a ferguson 999 please send him a tweet tell him that you heard about him from our show that'd be great so the homework for next episode we actually get to start the quenta silmarillion the history of the silmarils chapter one of the beginning of days so that's what we will be discussing on the next on the next podcast it's not it's not a huge chapter um it's also a really good one so hopefully you'll enjoy reading and then enjoy listening to us talk about it thanks ads good job on the homework assignment may can you plug yourself and your vlog one more time yes so guys uh, come and say hello on twitter at makeyhella um on facebook as well i have a facebook page makeyhella and on YouTube, you guessed it, Make Hella on YouTube, uh, where you'll find uh, a couple of vlogs on the Green Door podcast. So come and say hi and uh, introduce yourself. Excellent. Ads, plug yourself. Okay, so on Twitter, at Ad7, uh, capital A, capital S. Uh, and yeah, Facebook, come and say hi in the group, uh, the Green Door podcast. And we would love to love to have you in there and and just yeah, come say hi. Please do and find us on Twitter at the Green Door Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Tommy Bombadil One. And uh, thanks for listening. If you made it through all that rambling mumbo jumbo, then maybe we'll see you again <laughs> next week because it'll be more of the same. Definitely. Thanks a lot, everybody. May ads that was really fun. Good night, guys. Likewise. Say good night to the people. Good night, guys. Good night, Thank everyone. You.
wait, before we do that, May, is that okay in terms of a gender assigned role um, <laughs> in our podcast? Making oh, tea? I just want to make sure that oh, I, please. I, you know oh, what, please. maybe you should answer the door with a sword. There's, there's, <laughs> so there's, funny. there's, there's no girls, there's funny. no girls until what, until you know, the second book, is there? <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't know, I might be wearing an apron, but I have a boot dagger, so no it's worries there. It's a boot there. dagger for you, for a hobbit, that's almost a sword. <clears throat> your wife is so cool, she lets you paint your door green, that's great. 